Good. I prefer to be down here this morning. Thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate that. And missions really is pretty simple in its focus and its purpose and its function. And uh, we want to we want to talk about that today as a church a little bit um, because we've wrestled with this issue for the several years that we have been uh, in existence, trying to find some specific direction without making something up. And so that's what we want to do is, as you open to Colossians chapter 2 today, I want to welcome those that are online watching with us. And even though we're talking about a, a church kind of uh, philosophy and matter today, there's, there's much to be gleaned from the book of Colossians. It's probably maybe my favorite book in the Bible because of its elevation of who Christ is in the world. So let's pray real quick. Father, thank you that we can gather together in freedom and good health and focus on your word today, Father, and be instructed by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I know that you want to teach us all. I know you want us to be encouraged. I notice that you want to walk together as a church, raising the banner of Christ high in a broken and hurting world. Lord, but we want to set the foundation right in our own hearts, Lord. We want to be pleasing to you. We want to be overcomers of sin. We want to model what it means to be a Christian and even challenge our own presuppositions about who we are as individuals and as a church. So today, Lord, we invite your spirit. We pray he would come and open our eyes in a way that man is not able to do so. Thank you very much, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's really kind of three three views as we, as we look at this, and, and the end result is I'm going to propose a, a church missions statement to you, but it's going to be based upon this passage. Uh, we've been thinking about this topic for a number of years as a church, how best to express our desire to see the Word of God go out into the world beyond our local community. Um, there's, I've been involved in church missions in some way, even as a child, for about 50 years now. So I've seen a lot of things come and go. A lot of us come from various church backgrounds that have missions expressions that look differently. We all have our own kind of ideas. And so between the simplicity of what we heard about missions, uh, the pastor talked to the children about, and having some kind of concrete plan and idea in forward motion, we got to work it out. We got to figure it out um, without making it up because we think we should do missions for the sake of missions. We do missions for the sake of Christ, so we want to follow his lead and and um, we talked about this at the end of last year, about coming up with some kind of a plan to begin to feel out what God would have us do in the world of missions, foreign missions. And uh, that's all been short-circuited by the pandemic. Uh, we were hoping we could actually select something this year and travel somewhere and begin to make some connections. But as we talked about it recently in light of the pandemic, it seems like uh, as elders, we came to the conclusion that there's really kind of two ways we can look at it. And, and in the end, maybe the two ways will be uh, tracks of the same vehicle we can operate on. And, and that is that we do missions in kind of a standard way. We select a missions family, person uh, with a targeted ministry in a targeted country um, and support them and be involved and go be part of it. But it seems like the other opportunity that is often talked about that people are less inclined to do is to support a mission that's in a hard place of the world that we really can't access that is hard for us to go to uh, culturally, safety-wise, just physical access, in which the gospel is being preached, um, uh, that we can help under, undergird that, support that with money and, and, and prayer and the opportunity uh, to bring accountability, if that makes sense to you. 
A lot of times people don't want to do a foreign missions that is mostly just providing or money support because it's not as satisfying for the individual in a way to not go and not be part of it and, and maybe you know, we'd have to communicate over Zoom or whatever it might be. But we really think that is also very legitimate because as the world of missions expands, it becomes more apparent that the best missionaries are often the people in their own native land. You know, they need to be taking, if you're in Liberia, the best way the gospel can go forward in Liberia is for Liberians to take it forward. It's uh, more cost-effective. It's more effective culturally. There's no learning curve. All of those things which are part of doing missions in a foreign country when you have a big learning curve coming from our kind of a culture. So as we've talked about it, we feel like because our, we are limited right now to actually go, we think we should work on this other track um, of supporting something that's doing a hard work in a hard place with someone that's verifiable, maybe we know, and that we can provide some financial and prayer support in the meantime while we develop the other track. So I, at the end of our day, I'm going to have a proposition for you in that way also. Now, we have tried to be sensitive to the idea that, you know, this is a congregational-led church at the end of things and that the elders don't just decide how we do everything. Uh, the missions area has been a little bit difficult because we've been so busy, you know, doing what we've done in the life of our church that we haven't had the involvement of other people in this decision process. So by promoting something specific, we're not saying that we're excluding members of the church to be involved and help direct the missions of the church, if that's on your heart to do. And we want to encourage people to come along and be part of that. And we've actually encouraged a little bit of that behind the scenes. Um, so, but we really feel like we need to, to make some movement forward. So as I've thought about this, and you know, I'm, I'm particularly pa uh, you know, passionate about missions in the world, um, I thought about this, I was reading in uh, Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to just start in verse 6 and read through verse 15, and I felt like uh, this really resonated with what it is we want to see in other people of the world, 2 verse 6. And it's interesting that in, in my ESV it says, Alive in Christ, that's the title of this section. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our, transpass our trespasses. trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there's a lot in there, and we're going to kind of dissect that just a little bit, 
because I believe, to me, this is the foundation of the kind of missions philosophy of what is it that we want to see in people. And you know, churches always have their fancy mission statements um, about what we want to see because it's important we know what the goal is that we're after. And I felt, well, we should base it on something in Scripture would have the most strength of passion to say to others, what is it that you're trying to do? Now, in this passage, uh, what I want to do is I move us toward thinking about a missions kind of philosophy. There's really two ways we look at a passage like this. One is, what did it say to those people at that time? And the second is, what does it say to us today? Too often, we leave out the first part. We would just want to know, what's the Bible saying to me today in my life? Well, that's true, but the best way is to look at what it says to them and how that might uh, look at what it says to us. And then further, how does that instruct us about our mindset about doing missions in the world? So we're going to kind of have to operate on those couple of different levels, and we'll move through this rather quickly. But my proposition is that we want to do missions in light of this passage, Colossians chapter 2, because there are a number of things in here that lay out what the Christian life really looks like, what our response is. Um, and I made a little kind of short list here that you can see. If we were in a Sunday school setting, I'd ask you to you know, shout out, what do you see in here in this passage? Um, Paul is talking to the Colossians because they're, they've been swept up in a certain kind of philosophical, religious influence uh, in their church. And we'll look at that here after I make a few points. Some of the things that it says to us, don't be taken captive by other ideas. Other ideas. Well, what other kind of ideas? And I describe it as anything that's not according to Christ. It's really that simple. That's our measure. That's our measurement. You know, we talked a few times about what's going on in our culture and how we need to be careful to measure what we're hearing by things as they're according to the gospel and according to Christ and according to the word. And be careful not to get caught up in other philosophies maybe that are man-centered or energized. The second truth is that Christ is divine, yet He had a body. He is one with God in rule and authority. Now, I would say that typical Christianity since the Reformation has not had a big problem with the idea that God is both divine and physical, or Jesus is both divine and physical. But back in the day of the Colossians, that was an issue. Um, which we'll talk about briefly, that he's both. He's not one or the other. Thirdly, he has cut away the sinfulness of our hearts. That's the discussion about circumcision in here. What that means is that, that, that uh, it represents cutting away sin of our heart, a, a kind of a physical idea of a spiritual reality, the sin that's not needed, the sin that affects us, and that it's a painful process, but it's necessary. Fourthly, that we have a new life in Christ by the power of the resurrection, without which we're dead spiritually. That we have a new life in Christ by the power of the resurrection. That's how we get this new life. Fifthly, we are no longer in debt to God because of our sin. We all know that. We know that, but we don't always walk in that because we want to make a way for ourselves, And people of the world are just the same way. And finally, that Christ has conquered 
every spirit that is not part of his kingdom. And they were particularly focused on spirits at that time. We, some teachers call this elemental spirits. So where we can see, that act, see this is to actually jump down into verse 18, which we didn't get to. We get a feel for what Paul was saying to them without specifics. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So there was some kind of a thing going on um, then that we can also see back in chapter 1, verse 15. I'll just read that. It says, He is the image, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he goes on to talk about, For all things were created by Him on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So in the Colossian church and in the Ephesian church also, Paul was dealing with some spiritual ideas uh, about angels and visions and, the, and, and ideas that the spirit world is the summation of our experience in our life and that we really should downplay the needs of the body, the importance of the physical body, and this physical realm that we live in. There was this elevation of spiritism, if I can say that, that Paul was working back at saying those dominions and thrones and angels, even though they are real and they exist, the darkness and the darkness that goes with them, Christ is preeminent. Christ is preeminent in all things and that He's over all these. And that by his death and resurrection, as it says in verse 15, or, or is it, yeah, verse 15, chapter 2, that he put him to shame by the death and resurrection. Just when Satan thought he had Jesus where he wanted him in death, his resurrected body came back to us and ascended to heaven, and Jesus was triumphant. So it is really this idea that we want to take to the world, that regardless of the cultural and philosophical ground that is in any particular culture, Christ is preeminent over all of it. And that's the good news. It's not, I shouldn't say only, it is first and foremost that Christ died for our sins and He was resurrected so that the penalty of sin was paid and we're free, but He's also preeminent over all these things. And sometimes that's where we stumble as Christians we forget that on our day-to-day -day life when things aren't going well or we don't get what we want or we're in pain, we're in suffering, that God is in control. He's sovereign. Christ is preeminent. Yes, I know He died for my sins and I'm free and I don't carry the burden of guilt, but larger than that, my entire life is under His control and direction and goodwill. That's the message we want to take, take to people. So as I've thought about it, I've thought that there's really two things that are important in missions. There's two things that are important for us when we think about our culture and how to reach people. There's two things. We'll talk about those briefly here. The first is we need to understand the philosophical 
and or religious context we're working in. Okay, we've got we to know what that is. And so let's think about it first in our culture. What kind of culture do we live in? I mean, we know instinctively, but sometimes it's good to refresh it because we forget what we're up against as Christians in our culture. Maybe some of you kids can tell us. Now, they, they may be good or bad. I'm not saying that all these influences are bad. What kind of influences do we have in this world? What kind of voices? What kind of practices? What kind of traditions? Yes, yes, social media. So what we're saying is, okay, as a church, we're stopping. We're thinking, okay, what things in our context affect us and affect our idea of how we do ministry? Social media. Not good or bad, just a fact. Politics. Ah, everybody is their own authority. Independence. What else? Oh. Self-fulfillment, self-actualization is the highest good. Yes, self-fulfillment, self-actualization. And that will actually come to play on our next point, too. Governmental rules. School campuses. School campuses is a way we live. We, the way we do business in America is our schooling system, campuses. Entertainment is a cultural phenomenon, huge. Make money, right? Capitalism. Religiously, we'd have to say that what's had a big influence on our country, at least to date, is the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? You've heard that, kids, Judeo-Christian ethic, um, which is slipping away. So these are all, oh, and I say we're a sensual culture. We're very sensual most cultures probably are, but we're getting worse and worse in that way. So these are all factors that we know, but that we have to recognize when we deal with people we know. And so philosophically, we have to deal with people about these things when we're trying to talk to them about the gospel. See, Paul was dealing specifically with the Colossians. This thing, this uh, elemental spirit thing, these visions, this thing that is being talked in your ear and around you is not true. And you need to push back against it in your mind and in the minds of those people in your church and around you. So when we talk about uh, the downsides of any of these cultural things or um, the real issue of culture, we need to be ready to push back against them in our life and in those around us. And see, what's hard for kids to understand, younger people, is um, that a lot of the cultural influences are not necessarily bad, but a lot of it can be bad. And as a mature adult, you're able to sometimes to sort, you're able to sort out what's a proper use of social media, what's, a, what's the bad part about it, and avoid it. And entertainment, and we could go on. And so that's the struggle. It's not that these things are necessarily bad. It's wisdom, and it's understanding the culture and the times, and how to apply God's word to them. Unfortunately, we usually make it a matter of, you know, um, good and bad, black and white, yes and no with kids, and we don't train them well to discern things. It's a lot more work and it's harder. So we see in the Colossian context what it was. We know in our own context. So when we go and we do missions or we look at a missions project, that we say, well, we think we should be involved in this. We have to highly respect we might not know the first thing about the context. 
That's the beauty of trusting existent believers and churches in another context. They already know it. Now, they're probably struggling to get it right as a Christian in their context, just like we are. So you have to cut slack anywhere there's missions going on that it's not even going to be a perfect scenario. They're, they're not going to be somehow magically smarter about how to do ministry in their culture than we are. But it's a leg up when we can support someone in a far-off place that knows the context and knows. Now, a lot of times I do see in missions that that's all, that in churches that already exist in some places, they might not have a lot of theological training. Um, and that's something we have talked about a lot in the past. We are very interested that churches and pastors and elders of missions churches have good understanding of the word. That's a good place to help um, because oftentimes that doesn't exist. And so that affects how they do their church and how they minister to their culture. So there are many ways to come along and help them see the same thing we understand about dealing with culture. So the second part has to do with, and this idea might be new to you, I, I know I've talked about it before, is to look for redemptive analogies. Redemptive analogies. What does that word analogy mean? I know you're wanting to say something, Scott, so go ahead. Great. <clears throat> Comparison between two things for the sake of clarification. I was hoping you were going to use that word and show us how smart you really are. So, because he really is smart. So here's an analogy, all right? <clears throat> so I might say, man, I wish she was here. I might say, my love for my wife is like a warm, dewy sunrise with the smell of flowers all around. Okay? So I'm comparing the love for my... Man, it's too bad she had to do something stupid. But stay with me. So that's an analogy to try to make a point, right? Now, I, I actually gave you a visual analogy to think about what my love is. But however, what happens if I say to you that furthermore, my love for my wife is like this, but it was followed by a severe thunderstorm the night before. What if I add that? So that paints a whole kind of other picture, doesn't it? So I know that's corny, but I want to talk to you about redemptive analogy. That's what we are attempting to do when we think about a redemptive analogy. What can we see in a culture that is analogous or is an attempt to recreate redemption in Christ, all right? So let's cut that apart a little bit. There's a great book called Peace Child. Some of you probably know about it. It's about a missionary and his wife, Don Richardson, who were missionaries in New Guinea. And I think it might have been in the 1970s. So they were with in the what we used to call the savages in New Guinea, um, trying to do missions. And this was a culture of retribution and revenge, kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. You heard about them. That 
sometime, long time before something bad happened, one did something to the other, and so revenge became a lifestyle, and they eventually forgot what started it all. But it was a revenge of treachery, and it's really pretty ugly. I mean, it's a, it's a PG-13 book, actually, parts of it, because they describe the treachery of befriending someone, and then they would actually kill them later, and cannibalism was involved. So... Don and his wife arrive in this culture to bring the gospel. And they, become, they became quite frustrated and were thinking about leaving because everything they tried to do um, didn't have any impact. They were so steeled in their revenge culture. And I will just throw in there right now, you can see how that develops because it's developing in our culture right now a little bit. Once... Violence is visited on one group, that group wants to strike back, and then that group strikes back, and the cycle can go on. So don't ever kid yourself, it's not possible in any culture. And it's common. It's a common feeling. Well, anyway, after years of this, just at the moment they were thinking about leaving the mission field, something strange happened. One of the chiefs of the tribe decided that he would give his new infant son to the other chief in their tribe as a way to make peace, and they called it the peace child. That's where the name of the book comes from. In hopes that by having them raise a child from their tribe, they wouldn't be so quick to try to get revenge on themselves because there were hardly any young men left, and it was, it was really ugly. It was then that the idea of a redemptive analogy came to Don, and he thought, what they're having is they're sacrificing a child to someone who didn't deserve it to bring peace with them. And he said, that's exactly what Christ did for you. God sacrificed his son on your behalf when you and I didn't deserve it, and he died, and he gave his life, and God gave up his son so we could have peace between us and God. So he began to think about this redemptive analogy and the power, and that worked, the, that clicked with these tribes, that when they, he brought the gospel and said, this is what Jesus is doing, just what you did, it made sense. And uh, actually, I watched some videos this week of them going back after all these years and visiting the tribes, and they have a flourishing Christian community on this island with these tribal people because of the ministry these people did. And so I've thought about that over the years, about using redemptive analogies, thinking about it, and that helps us. I think we can see that the Colossians were trying to redeem themselves through philosophy, tradition, following the spirits. They were focusing on the spirit world. We should not fool ourselves. Everyone worships, right? Everyone worships something. And everyone is trying to redeem themselves in their own eyes at some level by what they're doing and how they're living. So... How do we do that in our culture? I think Trent already hit on one of them that I thought of. We're going to lift ourselves up. I'm going to make myself a better person. Not a terrible idea, but it's not redemptive. How else? Go to church on Sunday and 
confess your sin and get absolution and go back to your regular life. Mm -hmm. Giving to the poor, charity. If I'm just what? A good person? God will... Just go on Facebook and look how people kind of virtue signal, what the current virtue signal thing is saying. You can kind of see what... I mean, they're looking for redemption. We're looking for redemption, exactly. Virtue signaling or... Um, all these things in which we'll say something to agree, but we don't actually change anything. It doesn't deal with a sin in our heart. So you can look around and you can see it all the time in people's lives. They're searching for something. We're, we're searching for some things like fulfillment. We're searching for hope. We all want to have hope. We want to have fulfillment. But ultimately, we're searching for redemption. We're searching for that which tells us I'm okay, that God's not going to be upset with me at the end of time. And so that provides us the opportunity for ministry. I wanted to read something here about what it means, though, to be a Christian as opposed to who's influenced by the Word and by Christ and not by all the cultural things that cry out for us to fulfill for our own redemption. First, the Christian is the man. This is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Christian theologian who was martyred by the Nazis in World War II. The Christian is the man who no longer seeks his salvation, his deliverance, his justification in himself, but in Jesus Christ alone. He knows that God's word in Jesus Christ pronounces him guilty even when he does not feel his guilt, and God's word in Jesus Christ pronounces him not guilty and righteous even when he does not feel that he is righteous at all. The Christian no longer lives of himself by his own claims and his own justification, but by God's claims and God's justification. That is the message that we want for ourselves, for our church, for our community, and for the world. We're justified only through Christ, not any and all other attempts to find redemption in and of our own strength and our activities. So here is my proposed mission statement for our church. It comes right out of the passage in Colossians 2. Twisted a little, twisted, that's the wrong word to use. Polished a little bit for our English sake. To see all people established in the faith, rooted and built up in Jesus Christ, walking in fruitfulness and joy. That's what we want for all people everywhere. Rooted in Christ, built up, walking in faithfulness and joy, and established. So as we look toward a missions opportunity, that's our simple goal. That's our simple goal. So I've already described the two opportunities that we kind of see as elders. The standard missions program, where it's long-term, it's personal, it's involved, it might take teams and all that kind of thing, which is great. But missions are now out of our reach personally right now and will be so for some months to come, most likely. But within our reach are any number of opportunities that we can support and embrace. In the last, um, for a long period of time, I've 
stayed friends and in contact with uh, Jerry Miner, who used to be an elder at Grace Community Church. Some of you know Jerry Miner. Um, Jerry was uh, a local salesman here and raised his family as a Christian, was an elder in church forever. And at, at the, as he got a little older, he felt called to retire and go do missions work for Water Missions International, who's probably the premier water missions agency in the world. Um, I've, I've interacted with them many times in my work with Samaritan's Purse. And Jerry and his wife sold their house here in Lima, and they moved down to South Carolina and became part of that ministry for a number of years. And um, then about nine years ago, by circumstances which always seem to happen in ministry, God led them to be connected with uh, churches in Pakistan, of all places. And over these years, they've built up a network of people in Pakistan, and he's been there himself 10 times. Um, in Karachi, in a nation that's 99% Muslim, and he has been a facilitator of ministry. Um, he doesn't do the ministry. He facilitates ministry of the Pakistanis. And right now, they've helped plant 50 churches in that area of Pakistan. In fact, they said we need to stop planting churches because it's possible to let things run ahead when there's no training, there's no teaching, and you have churches that are doing who knows what. And they have, they have this opportunity for support. And the elders, we talked with Jerry recently online, and we heard about the ministry, and we're very intrigued because it's a hard ministry in a hard place being done by people we know that can verify on the ground what's happening. And so it's very intriguing. And they just had the first Christian conference in which I think he said there were almost 400 pastors, evangelical pastors from around the nation gathered in one place for teaching and encouragement. Nothing like that that they know of has ever happened in Pakistan. So it's an amazing thing that's going on that Jerry's kind of like, I have no idea how it's happened. And they, they have some employees there, you know, doing the ministry thing. They have uh, one particular leader, and uh, Jerry just facilitates, you know, the, the barriers that exist there socially and politically. And so they really have developed a lot of influence. And I've suggested to the elders that we send them some money and support them and become a little more connected with what they're doing as something that we can pray for and see. Uh, the major denominational influence is Assemblies of God, but there's also Anglican and some Baptists, I think, in there too. So, you know, we're always concerned about doctrinal uh, influence and where it goes. But I think it's an amazing thing that's happened, and I've been sitting back and watching it. I didn't, I didn't support Jerry at all. Um, I just kind of let him do his thing, and I've been doing my thing. Um, but that's something we think we want to support as a church. Because it really fulfills this idea that this is what we want. We want to see people established in Christ. But they know their context. For example, I said, give us, a, give us an idea of the cultural context there. And he said, well, one thing is there are Christians here. He said, but they're not really Christians. They're known as Christians because they were, they're actually Hindus, but they are subsequent generations of people who truly were Christians, and they called themselves Christians. So over the decades, they had children 
and they were still called Christians culturally. And so they're despised in that country because they're Christians. But he says, if you ask them who Jesus is, they go, who? They don't even know who Jesus is. So that's really kind of a weird, twisted cultural context that you can't know unless you're dealing with people that are there. And they know how to deal with those people. One of their bigger successes, because they have schools now, they're trying to set up a medical clinic, they have all these churches, is um, that they're working with really secular Muslims. There's a large group of secular Muslims that are actually despised by the hardcore Muslims. And so there's common ground there with secular Muslims that they're actually doing good works in the community with in many different ways. So it's very interesting what they're trying to do culturally. So that's, that's kind of where I was bringing this to. Obviously, it's something we'll continue to talk about and get some information before you um, as an idea of some place that there's no way you and I could saddle up and drop into Karachi, Pakistan and do much ministry out of the gate. Wouldn't happen. Um, it's a dangerous place. It's a dangerous ministry. So that means I'll probably be going there sometime. <laughs> so um, anyway, I wanted you to be encouraged that we are working toward missions work in our church. We want to keep that as something that is always on our heart. I think too many churches, they define themselves whether or not they have a missions program. Well, that's not biblical. But we do want to see the expression in our church that we are following the example of going out into the world and taking Christ to places that need the gospel, not just here at home. And we want to be faithful to that. Um, we've managed to have a bunch of barriers over the years with where we were at and money and no pastor and building and all these things. We feel like the time has come to step out in faith and move forward and bless people who are doing ministry somewhere else in the world. I want to close with Colossians 3, verse 1. This is good for all of us at all times, in every day and every way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Father, thank you so much that you have given us the opportunity to participate in ministry in so many ways. But we know, Lord, that we need your strength. We need your guidance. We need the ability to rise above the earthly things that so easily captivate us. And Lord, even those things that are good in our life that we must accomplish on a day-to-day -day basis. And Lord, we do pray that you give us guidance in the area of missions. We pray that what we do is something that you are directing. And we're not directed by our emotions or our personal desires, but Lord, that you're directing by your spirit. And Lord, I do lift up this ministry in Pakistan. And I think about how difficult this must be for those Christians. Yet, Lord, they joyfully serve you. They joyfully come together and sing your praises. They joyfully reach out to their community. And, Father, I know that this COVID crisis has made it so difficult for so many of these folks. But we pray you would give them the supply that they need, the resources, the encouragement, and the safety so that your name might find its way through that culture there 
today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen.